This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Knight's Madness Dossier Agents. Combating Harassment. Umberto Echo. And the Font Hill Abbey Tower. The Unknown Army's role-playing game is kickstarting for a new edition right now. And Atlas Games needs your help to make it the greatest new edition of Unknown Armies it can possibly be. Unknown Armies is an occult RPG about broken people conspiring to fix the world. As obsessive denizens of the supernatural underground, you scheme to bend reality before reality bends you. Find out how far you'll go to get what you want. Battle forces fighting tooth and nail to reshape the world into something you'll despise. Master or be mastered by shock gauges, the game's mechanical spine. Each PC can suffer emotional trauma in areas like helplessness, violence, or the unnatural. Any of these can harden you or break you. The occult and unnatural in Unknown Armies are like a secret world that Tim Powers and James Elroy might conspire to create. Your obsessions and sacrifices define reality, but only if you're willing to risk it all. What would you risk to change the world? Your friends, your family, your sanity, your life? Magic finds a way to ask the very most from you until you change the world or are left with nothing. Unknown Armies was created by Greg Stolze and John Tynes. Originally released in 1998, it became an instant classic. Now comes a new edition more ambitious than any other with meaty changes to the unknown army's cosmos substantial revision to the rules of play keyboard curling updates for the internet age shudder before the fervid majesty of its prestige format a three book set with all the awesome stretch goals and add-ons you've come to expect but greg john and atlas games need your help to make this new edition happen search kickstarter for unknown armies or follow the link at atlas-games.com back unknown armies today and change your reality change everyone's reality The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've entered once more the friendly confines of the gaming hut, but here in the gaming hut, Peter Frampton looks awfully like William S. Burroughs, the <laughs> dice clatter in a mysterious echoey fashion as though they were being rolled on a table in another universe. And uh, the miniatures are, uh, well, they're they're still there. They're all right, because they're made out of silver to fight vampires with. Um, this is a themed episode of The Gaming Hut based on the question by listener Bill Sundwall, who asks... Not just listener, but Patreon backer Bill Sundwall, who has earned the right to ask a question he by has being a Patreon right. backer. At any rat, he asks, regardless of his bona fides, which are excellent... How would one go about fitting Ken's madness dossier to work in Knight's Black Agents? He's paying to self-promote you. He's paying to promote me. <laughs> what a great guy is Bill Sunwall. I tell you, he should be gazing down from the wall, not that loser Peter Frampton. A scholar, a gentleman, and an acrobat. So I guess for the uh, purposes of listeners who are not Bill Sundwall, uh, we all know uh, by now, I think, what Knight's Black Agents is, if, unless this is our first episode of the podcast, in which case, welcome. Let's hope uh, so. So Knight's Black Agents is the gumshoe game in which you are espionage operatives uh, fleeing the vampire's 
who have decided to kill you. And uh, Manus Dossier is perhaps uh, one of your uh, less well-touted works, so why don't you explain for the folks why you needed to mention William S. Burroughs? It is not just less well-touted, it is also a bit more recondite. Madness Dossier pits super agents of uh, the mysterious Project Sandman against the Sumerian gods who dominate the previous iteration of Earth's history. And Earth's history came to an end in... Ah, uh, that old saw. That old saw. That, that cliche. And one of the hundred games about that. Um, it's for GURPS. Uh, GURPS Horror Madness Dossier is its full title that it was born with. Um, the uh, world comes to an end in 535, uh, much as in Tlan Ukbar Orbis Tertius, or Dream of a Thousand Cats, when some act changes the history over, a great reality quake occurs, and the previous history is buried beneath a scrim of false history, and our history continues as though it were written, which in fact it was. So we think we're in our current reality, but we're actually in this weird reality, or vice versa? Uh, we think that we are in our current reality, which will be true until something more powerful thinks it the other way. And there are pieces and uh, ejecta of the previous reality that sort of surface in our reality, just as rocks that were buried by an earthquake will come surfacing up in the field uh, centuries or millennia later. These rocks, in this case, are, Sumer are monsters out of Sumerian legend. Uh, the William S. Burroughs part comes from the fact that back when those Sumerian gods created us, they programmed our languages to control us. And so, therefore, the goal of uh, Project Sandman is to prevent these uh, Sumerian monsters from using their knowledge of our cheat codes to make us do things. And that sort of is a William S. Burroughs, uh, Snow Crash type uh, blend. Language is a virus from ancient Sumer. Exactly. And uh, the uh, whole thing is wrapped up in techno-thriller action. Uh, the uh, player characters can be anything from gifted mimetic anthropologists to commandos to children who are raised by computers speaking only a computer-created language that is immune from alien uh, taint, uh, but they're only like teenagers, and so therefore they don't have a, a vast panoply of skills, uh, to uh, people who deliberately suppress their linguistic centers and invite possession by programmed entities uh, similar to the law of voodoo, to the people who hack the wetware that is human brains with any number of uh, unpleasant little probes and devices. So it's a sociolinguistic techno thriller with uh, lots of guns and lots of creepy mind control. And that's what the Madness Dossier is. And if you would like more information, I urge you to go to Warehouse 23 and download it now. It's not that expensive and it's pretty gerpsy, but uh, the the love of crazy stuff will shine through regardless of system. And that is Bill Sundwell's question. He obviously would like to run it in Gumshoe and with Madness Dossier, which is itself a techno thriller about going after terrifying monsters from beneath history. Right. So you've got uh, one techno thriller about running away from vampires, and you've got one techno thriller about uh, reality hacking. So uh, how do you uh, start to mush those together? And we'll try to tease out uh, principles here that we can use in mushing other different things together in order to expand the remit of this segment. So uh, mush away. I think that the first thing that one needs to do is you need to come up with the sort of power equivalents for the eruptors, which are these Sumerian monsters, um, so that they can use them against the player characters. And the player characters can then have a 
weaker subset of that power set that they use mostly against innocent witnesses of what's going on. Because, of course, if you see Sumerian monsters, you begin to believe, hey, maybe this is a world full of Sumerian monsters. And lickety split, you're back in uh, bad old history B. So the... uh so you, you, first you want to define these powers and things like the linguistic viruses. Uh, so you would want to be able to develop a gumshoe equivalent for a mimetic virus, something that, uh, makes you operate against your will or believe things that you don't believe. We have the, uh, very broad mind control capabilities in Knights Black Agents. So sort of providing color and refinement for those will take care of a lot of that. Right. And you can maybe steal some of the, or adapt some of the dreamscaping uh, rules in uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, which is all about, uh, it's a reality shifting uh, game in its own 1930s surrealist sort of way. So you could uh, look at that and uh, kind of, take those mechanics and uh, port them into this. Yeah, the um, the the artifacts from the old reality, the reality shards, uh, by that, by definition, they violate physical law because physical law is a is a consensus uh, scrim in many senses, or they are based on technologies that are uh, n- not just gone, but literally forgotten. So they can sort of violate the rules on a one off basis, which is not a big problem. Um, you need to also work up a a uh, player character equivalent for things like mimetic and mimetics and neurolinguistic programming. A lot of that I think is just going to be a matter of assigning a pool of points to interpersonal skills that, you know, op- operate on an automatic basis so that although they do more than just deliver the clue, they also deliver cooperation, but it takes a certain amount of your stability. Perhaps uh, it might be that uh, again, as you use the methods of the enemy, you become dangerously like them. Right. So basically you can spend, uh, so when you need information from people, you, you as according to the way that Gumshoe always works, you get that information if you can describe it in a credible way that matches one of the, in this case, interpersonal abilities that you have. But if you want some other action out of a, a GMC, uh, a GM-controlled character, you need to spend points. And so, as you suggest, what you can do here is uh, create a mechanic where you can spend your stability points on any of your interpersonal abilities in order to get those other effects, whether that is let me in through this door that you're supposed to prevent me from going through or wait here until I get back. <laughs> or you or, didn't see that horrible Sumerian monster. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I, I think you might want to tweak the um, uh, the abilities a little bit, maybe have an explicit uh, an explicit veil-out type ability. Um, in Esoterrorists, the veil-out is a, is a long operation that has to be done within the limits of of, of actually possible things. Uh, whereas in Madness Dossier, a, a good deal of the horror comes from the fact that your methods in the veil out are also pretty uh, weird and contemptible. So you have to erase people's memories through either wetware hacking or neurolinguistic programming. And so you'd want to have an ability that, that, that covers that. And again, I think that that you, you could build that most profitably off the uh, interpersonal ability suites and then add in a mind control component for the for the big things like nope you did not see scorpion men come eat your family that was just uh gangs of thugs or something and so then that's when you'd have to make a mind control roll of some kind on your own abilities and you can add points either from attack ability if you're using wetware hacking or from some uh neurolinguistic programming or memetics ability as if you're using that there's another ability that is common to agents of project sandman called esmology from the greek esmos meaning hive of bees and it is the ability to use knowledge of how the anunnaku these sumerian entities programmed us to predict what 
people in an organized group will do. So you can tell whether the cops will run left or right, right? You can tell, um, uh, when the, when the ambulance gets here, will it park on this side of the street or that side of the street? You can, you can predict, uh, patterns if they're done by people who are in an organization. And so that esmological ability is another sort of a wrinkle that, uh, Knights Black Agents and other gumshoe games don't really have. But I think Ashen Stars probably has, uh, limited precog with the Vaz Mall and things like that. And I think diving and Mutant City Blues has uh, stuff you can probably right. steal as well. It may even be uh, more immediately stealable. Right. And, and certainly already tied into the 20th century or 21st century uh, thriller mode. I, I So I would start looking at the abilities from, from Ashen Stars, from the Vaz Mall, and from Mutant City Blues, as you suggest, and look at methods by which those are... I mean, esmology is probably going to wind up being... A, uh, a power of some sort, whether it looks like an investigative ability with a larger spend pool like forgery does, or whether it looks like a technical ability that you have to use. I think that with osmology, you're going to be gathering information from it. So it might wind up one of those hybrid abilities like, um, uh, well, like all of them are in, in Knights Black Agents, where you can use a general ability investigatively. So you look at a gun and with your shooting, you know, um, uh, what make and model it is and, and whether or not it was sold in Czechoslovakia or in um, uh, China or in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Right. And for those who don't know uh, Gumshoe, there's two kinds of abilities, investigative abilities, which primarily gather information or general abilities, which primarily allow you to achieve other practical aims in the world. The difference between those two things is it's never interesting to fail to get information, but it's often comes with a raft of interesting consequences when you fail to shoot a guy. to start your motorboat <laughs> yeah. or shoot a guy or jump over a wall or in this case uh, use your reality hacking abilities to uh, convince somebody that something didn't happen right because then that sets up the well do you shoot him or do you figure out some other way of, of making it didn't ever happen um, you just destroy his credibility completely so he can rant all day about Sumerian monsters and no one will believe him uh, so there's lots of different possibilities and I think one of the things with, with any genre or with any source material, one of the keys to turning it into any game system, and especially something like Gumshoe, is to go through uh, very minutely, uh, or as minutely as you can, and say, here is an action that is expected. And it's either expected because the other game does this, it's expected because the source material does this. If this happens on, you know, three or four Star Trek episodes, we need to be able to do it in Ashen Stars. If Jason Bourne ever does it, you need to be able to do it in Knights Black Agents. That's why there's a rule for stripping a gun away from a guy. I was watching the Bourne trilogy for I don't know which time, and suddenly it was like, Bourne just took that guy's gun. I don't think you can do that in Nice Black Agents. Or at least there's not a rule to tell you how to do it. I'd better write that. So that's the sort of thing. And with uh, Madness Dossier, you just go through those 65 pages and you say, all right, have we got a rule that lets you make Loas come into your head? Oh, we do. We have a whole gumshoe zoom on voodoo. Let me go adapt the parts of that that are applicable and uh, turn it from a mystical process into a techno uh, sort of social science fiction process. Now, we've talked a lot about taking the Madness dossier setting and uh, fueling it with the gumshoe rules. How would you fuse the two settings? How does a vampire conspiracy trying to kill you turn into Sumerian reality hacking? Well, I think that given that in Nice Black Agents, you can define the vampires any way you like, you just say vampires are Sumerian monsters. And when a vampire shows up, the reason that it can fly and hypnotize people and do all that stuff is that it's a Sumerian reality hacking monster. The Sumerians, of course, have a vampire. 
uh, famously misnamed the Akimu by uh, Alistair Crowley. And like many things Crowley said, it's more fun to go along than to correct him like a, like a loser. So I would, I would say your, your sort of standard vampires that you meet every day are going to be Akimu. And then behind them are going to be the weirder, creepier, uh, lion men and, and bull men and scorpion men and snake men that, uh, festoon Sumerian legend. And they have weird powers and their vampirism comes in um, uh, draining away the reality around them and replacing it with this artificial Sumerian reality that the vampires once ruled the earth were destroyed by this act in 535 AD. And now the antediluvians to borrow a phrase from that other vampire game, that fine other vampire game are all slumbering, but Oh, heavens to Betsy. When they wake up, that's when everything changes back. And we're once more back in, the old history where the vampires rule us and have always ruled us with their linguistic and other vampiric powers. So I, I think you just redefine the vampires to be Sumerian monsters. And since you already have Sumerian monsters that are vampires, you can jump right onto that as the doorway through which, because the, the goal, one of the goals of Knights Black Agents is to always investigate this vampire conspiracy, not just to find out who does it run and who does it own, but also what are these monsters and how do I kill them and can they be killed? And that is exactly the kind of question you should be asking in um, Madness Dossier. In Madness Dossier, you begin basically knowing what they are and how they can be killed. And the horror is knowing the consequences of fighting them. In Knights Black Agents, the uh, question is pulled back a notch and you can either do that, which would be pretty fun, or you can begin from a position where, no, you're not... Um, uh, uh, three, uh, as, as my friend Josh once said, four plucky CIA agents, uh, four plucky burned CIA agents with a URL pass and a gun, but you are actually a, a, a secret conspiracy within the highest reaches of the British and American governments out there, uh, keeping reality safe because that's what they do. Given Gumshoe's focus on gathering information, I think it, the first one seems really interesting to me because what you could be discovering is how to engage in reality hacking so that you are, uh, over the course of the first few scenarios, beginning to assemble the uh, greater list of powers that you then begin to exercise. And so that gives you the cool sort of origin story arc that we uh, don't always have in uh, a role-playing game. And of course, the way that you would uh, mechanically allow that is that you would uh, very generously allow the players to bolt on all of these new abilities and the pools of points necessary to run them as rewards for discovering bits and pieces of information so that they are running around trying to figure out how the uh, psionic uh, reality hacking magic system works. And as they discover that, they get to then uh, use it. And of course, by using it, they will discover other things, including the aforementioned horrible consequences. So um, are there any uh, last uh, tips you want to give as we... uh, uh, creep out of this hut before the Akimu uh, get us? I would say, you know, begin with that uh, gumshoe mind control zoom, begin with the gumshoe voodoo zoom, uh, take a look at those mechanics, see what can be ported. Um, I think that that's one of the things that I do, certainly, when I do a gumshoe game, is I look at all the other gumshoe iterations that, that you've done or that I've done and say, how much of this is tech that I can you know, spin around and, and spray paint and bolt back in and make it do what I want it to do. And I think that's, I think that's true when you're adapting anything, but it's certainly true with a, a fairly modular system like gumshoe, which has got that, that long, clean chassis. And then you just stick stuff onto it wherever you want to. Okay. Well, uh, if you discover that your reality is melting, uh, it's not our fault. 
but we have warned you how to combat it, so uh, get out there and tackle those Sumerian vampires so that uh, we don't have to. And uh, the reason that we uh, don't want to do that is we have another segment right after this. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. So it's time to talk once again about the business of gaming, and on a uh, uncharacteristically serious note, I thought we would address something that actually matters. Uh, <laughs> well, let's let's not set a precedent here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is this the business of gaming, or does this actually matter, Robin? I mean, you, right. dude, uh, we well, should have I an actually matters actually matter. hug, maybe. And and it actually matters because uh, women are entering the hobby in uh, unprecedented numbers. Now, certainly, it's not uh, women entering hobby gaming didn't start uh, last year or the year before that. Uh, but early days... But our uh, podcast did. Yes, exactly. But uh, <laughs> obviously we had a, a big influx uh, during the days of Vampire, and then again during the early days of Magic. It's kind of weird now to think of Magic as something that uh, uh, brought women into the hobby, but uh, yes, indeed, that was so. And now I think because of the uh, a couple of factors, the greater accessibility to the ideas behind role-playing that you are suffused through the internet and also the kind of broader board game revolution, uh, which is leading to the, uh, game cafes and making hanging around with people playing games a much more normalized activity. Uh, video games, of course, have brought taught people the basic concepts of a hobby. And so I don't know, but you can, but just anecdotally, I'm seeing, you know, like never before, it really seems like we're headed 
uh, toward uh, gender parity. You know, even I think again, this is the Pokemon. This is the Pokemon effect. The the kids that were brought up from literally infancy, knowing all about levels and hit points and cards and colored objects and weird geek stuff, are now teenagers and they're in their prime game entering years. And it is now you know expected because they've literally been doing it their entire lives that they'll keep doing it for their entire lives in a way that it wasn't for um elderly guys like ourselves right and that's an awesome uh thing uh, both on a social inclusion front and on a uh, and like doubling our market front. on a capitalist front of doubling our market uh but uh that does bring into sharper relief something that i think in general uh we're talking a lot more about in society due to some high profile cases and some bad situations. And that is the uh, extent to which uh, harassment is a barrier to uh, women uh, doing anything comfortably in our society. And uh, I don't have the power to uh, deal with uh, harassment and sexism and bullying in uh, engineering and, or in uh, the movie industry. But uh, maybe I can have some tiny bit of influence as a professional over what happens in hobby gaming. So what we're going to look at is what practically uh, can we do to combat this and make uh, women feel at home and enjoy our fabulous games without uh, having a bunch of unnecessary friction and, and even sometimes actual danger uh, confronting them. So as Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than two guys talking about feminism is two guys not talking about feminism. So can, what, what can <laughs> pretty we, sure he said that? Yeah. So pretty sure he said that. So can, what, uh, can you and I and, uh, our colleagues, uh, actually do on a informal or institutional level to, uh, not just be aware of this, but to try and do something about it. Well, institutionally, I think that it's important that conventions like most public spaces, like, you know, like anyone who could possibly be sued within an inch of their life, have a straightforward and clear and uh, followed policy against letting guests harass other guests or staff harass guests or anyone harass anyone, frankly. But if you don't have that policy, then it gets down to informal social uh, enforcement and it's the informal social contract that has allowed the harassment to happen in the first place because the uh belief of the harasser that uh, no one will do anything is quite often enforced because as primates we don't want to do anything we want to just go on with what we were doing so uh to begin with you need to have a clear policy that applies uh in clear circumstances and that there is a understood and publicized ideally method of reporting uh, harassment and having something happen after you've reported the harassment. Uh, and once, and, and you would think that would be obvious, but it, it seems to be taking a while for people to do that. There are still conventions that uh, actively think it's a bad idea to have a harassment policy because that might give people the impression that harassment exists. Well, you know, God forbid that should happen. Yeah, so that that's extremely wrongheaded. But fortunately, uh, Twitter exists, so that's been solved. Yeah, so... Uh, Personally, what I can do, I don't run a convention, but I am invited to be a guest at conventions. And so now I have trained myself to, before saying yes, to go and check out the uh, convention's harassment policy. And if I don't find one, uh, this hasn't come up yet, but uh, if it does, I'll say, hey, what's your harassment policy? And uh, if it comes down to it, uh, I, I won't guest at a show that does not have an explicit harassment policy because guess what happens at shows that explicitly or implicitly announce that they're going to uh, sweep incidents 
uh, like this over the rug. Harassers know that, and they show up at them, and they harass women, uh, including women we know. Yeah. So I think that that would be, uh, that, I mean, that's the sort of, uh, on an institutional level, I think that's the, that, that, at the very least, that's the starting point. I think on a personal level, and speaking as a, uh, as a, as a, as a guy, as a, as a cishet, as we understand ourselves now in this magical new world, I think that the thing to understand for those of us who are brought up right and, uh, think of these guys as a weird anomaly is they may be a weird anomaly, but they are a weird anomaly that is, going around disguising themselves as people just like me, right? As guys who are, were brought up right. And so it is sort of our job as people who were brought up right to keep an eye out and see if maybe someone around your, your gaming table or maybe someone out in the general the ruck of the convention might not have been brought up right. Maybe they're making crass uh, sexual references at a uh, table of gamers and, Maybe someone is not comfortable with that. Certainly, if you're doing that at a public venue like a convention, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. And this is where being an uh, elderly Burkean comes in handy, because I don't think people should be doing that in public anyway. That's why we have private, for goodness sake. But you you need to know that the behaviors that are being attacked are pathologies that operate on the basis of those uh pathologizers the 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 um uh, creeps let's call the, them the creeps. creeps pure syllable yeah the the, the the creeps um uh belief and ability to uh masquerade as people who i have to believe are in the majority still uh who were brought up to not do that and wouldn't ever dream of doing that because it's creepy uh and we're not creeps and so when you hear about that from someone uh from usually from a woman but not always but you hear about it uh, you, your response is not, well, I wouldn't do it. So therefore it couldn't have happened. Your response is to listen to the person's complaint. And then to the extent that you can do anything about it, keep an eye out and make eye contact and force the issue. Creeps don't like having issues forced, certainly not by, uh, guys. Um, and, uh, that was not their point as creeps usually. And so if it needs to happen that you have to sort of police your table a little bit. Obviously, if you're the, if you're the guest of honor, you have a little more implicit social power. But if you're the GM, you have that same social power and your job should be, be brought up right and don't let that sort of creeping happen at your table where you can see it. And that I think is going to go a long way. That combination of listening to the complaint or the problem when it is presented to you, don't act, you know, like, it was brought to you to solve. It was brought to you to make sure that the, uh, that the woman, and let's keep saying woman because it is going to be a woman in 98% of cases, uh, isn't making it up or isn't, um, uh, being gaslighted by the guy because again, that's what creeps do. They gaslight. And so that she knows that someone has heard her and will be a witness in that case and will say, yeah, I, I heard about that. And that's like your minimum. And then at your maximum, keep an eye out for creeps and don't let them be at your table. And if they can't be at tables, that will at least narrow the problem down to hallways, right? Right. Um, and there are different sorts of harassers. There's the uh, we're talking presently about the sort of harasser who's uh, making uh, inappropriate sexual references, either in uh, an attempt uh, to uh, flirt with or uh, hit on the uh, women around them. And then there's and they the also do it to take the temperature of the table to see if if that kind of behavior is allowed at the table, right? right. And if it is, then uh, more overt uh, harassment, you know, un unwelcome touching and other things like that 
are then, that's the next boundary to push, right? They're like Hitler with the Rhineland. Right. And the, the thing about these guys is that they are extremely tactical, as you suggest, about uh, what they do and when they do it. And they uh, can, I think, sense when they're in the uh, presence of people, uh, including uh, men who aren't going to put up with that. And so they uh, take that elsewhere. So this is something that, for example, in my experience, doesn't happen where I am looking, which is very, very, very different from saying that it's not happening. But these guys kind of have a spidey sense for who uh, the the male peers around them, too, who they can exploit and get away with stuff and sort of create uh, this atmosphere. So it seems like one another concrete thing that we could do or conventions could do is uh, for GMs, provide them with a little uh, checklist uh, in their GM packet of how to handle inappropriate behavior at a table and how to watch out for it and uh, how to deal with it. And just the fact that it's there and gets that in people's minds as something to do and something to watch out for. And one of the duties of a good convention GM, because it's a group of strangers uh, together, is to, you know, just be alive to the possibility that something is going to happen and be ready to shut that down. And just having that sheet of uh, point form notes might, I think, go a long way towards getting people in that headspace and also signaling to these dudes who've shown up to cause sexual mischief that people are going to be on the lookout for them and they better dial that down. Yeah. And again, there's, you know, there's all manner of creeps in the world and doing all manner of creepy things and creeping will be with us just like every other human sin, you know, as long as there are people, but we can maybe make it so that the game conventions and, and nerd fun in general is less complicit or not complicit, less, um, uh, what do I want to say? Less of a unconsciously enabling, yeah, unconsciously enabling, less of a host body. You know, it's, it's like, um, if, if you've got ants, it's not your, you know, your bad behavior necessarily, but you can maybe, you know, not leave cans of soda open around that kind of thing. It's just don't provide an environment where that kind of thing can fester. Maybe let it go off and, uh, and, and try and find a, a, a more, salubrious environment for its uh, misbehavior. And that, if you just keep your, your table clean and I, you know, again, I'm sounding like it's the past, but you know, moral codes are moral codes for a reason. If you keep your table clean and you run a PG related game out in public, I don't think that that necessarily constrains you too much. And then if you want to have a game that deals with uh, more aggressively with uh, sexual issues or social issues or whatever they happen to be, then you can signpost that and say, this is going to be the table for that kind of uh, talk and behavior. If that makes you uncomfortable, uh, please do not play this game. And then at least you've signposted it ahead as opposed to people saying, oh, I'm sitting down to play Pathfinder. Holy crap, there's a lot of rape in my Pathfinder game all of a sudden. Don't do that stuff, man. Have something else happen. Right. And there are other environments other than conventions to think of. Uh, this is where we run up against the uh, split between the great game stores and uh, which are unfortunately uh, still too few in number and the uh, large number of kind of marginal uh, game stores. There's the, this is I think where you get the sort of the uh, gatekeeper bullying harassment where there's a table full of dudes there who play their weekly game every week and uh, see women customers, especially young uh, women coming into the store as uh, somebody to bait and hassle because they are afraid of women or don't want to hang out with women and uh, want uh, role-playing to be a refuge activity uh, for men. And uh, I would like to dream of a world where all of the stores are big and well-lit and have well-posted uh, harassment, uh, anti-harassment signs. 
and again, the staff willing to intervene and make sure that things happen. But uh, that's something else that we want to be aware of. So, uh, you know, the retailers who are on the ball about this don't need to be told by us to be on the ball about it. But I would love to see more of that happen just because that is more likely to be where you get your initial exposure to uh, the hobby and are more likely to be turned off for good if you go into a store and uh, a bunch of guys make a bunch of crude sort of bullying uh, comments to you. And I'd like to, I'd like to go back to what you said at the beginning, that it's, it just makes capitalist sense that you don't drive away customers. And well, uh, unfortunately too few of the crummy <laughs> stores are driven by capitalist sense. Yes. They're, they're basically well, club houses. The, the crummy stores are going to stay crummy regardless of what we do again, Robin. Including the sin of running a bad game store will be with us at all times. But the guys on the bubble who are thinking maybe I wouldn't, I would, I would like to, um, uh, I would like to expand my market. I would like to keep selling. I would like to be able to stock a full line of Ken and Robin products. Those guys, I think, maybe have not thought of it in a explicitly mercantile policy. It's like, well, if I, if I tell that four, those four guys in the corner to shut up, they won't come in and play D and D all the time and I'll lose their business. And it's like, well, fine, but how many people's business are those four guys costing you? And that's the question. And you may not have to tell all four of them to shut up. You may just have to tell the creepiest one of them to shut up. Maybe he leaves and the other three guys are like, thank God. Now we don't have to deal with creepy guy, but he kept coming to the store. So, you know, treat it like a bar, right? I mean, um, bars ban people all the time and turns out people still want to drink. So I would say maybe think of yourself as selling something that people want and, you know, you'd be surprised. Maybe people want it. Who knows? Right. And this is also where the rise of the game cafe, uh, I think, is a, a positive development because they are bars and the people yeah. uh, running them are trained uh, to look out for all sorts of uh, misbehavior and they're well lit and their uh, clientele is much more, much closer to gender balance, which is uh, again, a subliminal signal to uh, the, the creeps to cut it out. Um, and so that's something that's sort of happening uh, on its own, especially it's happening like crazy here in my neighborhood in Toronto. And it's something that, again, that uh, I, you know, want to see uh, more of, and we will see more of. Uh, and, Another thing that you can do as a professional is also be aware, not just of harassment and, and harassers, but the effect of ambient social harassment on women and how it holds them back from fully participating as professionals in any sphere, including gaming. So, for example, uh, women are uh, often talked over in group social situations or on panels. Uh, and or they are uh, so used to being talked over that they uh, wait and don't say very much. Uh, so if you are moderating a panel and you notice that uh, anyone on the panel, but this person is more likely to be a, a woman or a member of a, a group uh, who've been encouraged to uh, think of themselves as uh, not uh, as welcome as, as the white dudes are, that you make sure that you bring them in and keep asking them questions and draw them out. Uh, it's also a problem when you're trying to recruit uh, people to work on projects, right? The the, the white guys uh, have all the unearned confidence to say, yeah, what the heck, I'll jump on board your thing. And you have to do a lot more sort of coaxing and convincing. Uh, it's much more difficult for me uh, as a man to contact a, a woman creator I don't know and get her on board a project than it is uh, for a woman to do that. And again, it's because quite rightly, women have been trained to be wary of all men they don't know and and uh 
that's uh, something that you've got to uh, work to overcome. I can I can do a limited amount of kind of mentoring and doing network on people's uh, behalf and trying to help bring people along. And I, you know, am now making an active point of making sure that they are uh, women and other folks who we want to see more of in the hobby. And that's another thing that you can do as a professional is, uh, you know, think about the effects of your uh, mentorship and about drawing people out and, and actively bringing them on board your projects to collaborate with you. And that's another thing. Um, speaking of uh, talking over the uh, female creatives and, and female creators of games, the number of times I've heard from people uh, in the industry, women in the industry, that they'll be manning a booth, they will have written the game or published the game or art directed the game, or they'll have had a creative role in the game. And a customer will say, um, oh, I'm waiting for the designer, or I'm waiting to talk to someone who built the game, or they just won't talk until a guy shows up and then they'll start talking. You know, assume someone in a booth is there to sell you the game and knows about the game at the very least, right? Assume that they're sales personnel. Like you would, you, you don't go to the gap and you say, well, I'm going to wait for a guy because women don't understand shirts. You know, no one says that in their head. Assume that someone behind the booth knows the product that you're uh, interested in. And then, hey, maybe you've lucked into your talking to the designer. I'll, I promise you, not all the doughy bearded white guys in the booth know anything about the game either. So just, <laughs> just assume that people in the booth know what they're doing and then, you know, operate on that basis. That will go at least some way to letting people take pride of ownership in the game that they helped create for God's sake. And God knows in some, with some games and at some companies, that's all the pay they get. So, uh, in, encourage that. Yes. Uh, you're not behind a booth at Gen Con because you've been, uh, just hired to work retail. Everybody there is involved in some, uh, behind the scenes capacity or uh, in a creative capacity. And those two things are often the same. And, and you know, the people there uh, know their stuff. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, women working uh, booths as they are working uh, anywhere are not there to be uh, nice to you or to be uh, flirted with in that sense. I mean, they're there, they're there to be nice to you in the sense of they're to be nice to everybody else, but they're not there for you to interact with as a, a crush object because, I can't think of a less romantic setting than a booth at Gen yeah. Con. <laughs> Hopefully we're not talking to listeners about this, but just know that the women who are working the booth have people come up and say, uh, not even mean, but just sort of clueless, inappropriate things, or come up and take photographs of them as if they're strange creatures that have been suddenly caught in the wild. And uh, yeah. I mean, if you're working the booth dressed as, um, uh, as, as poison ivy, I, I guess there's some of that is going to happen anyway, but not at, at Gen Con we're, we're dressed as sweaty overworked game employees. And again, I, I think I can speak for the entire industry when I say we're, we're just not attractive at Gen Con. Don't, don't do that. Uh, or attractive or not. That's not why people are there. It's, it's yeah, not right. what that's about. Well, and, Christian Peterson's attractive regardless. Take pictures of him. Right. But you know, He's we're not there to man. flirt with Christian. We're there to learn about his new game with a whole bunch of cool, different colored... All those little meeples. All the meeples. Right. Well, we're talking about meeples and Christian Peterson, which means that either we have solved the problem of harassment or... Or B. B, we are out of room in our hut and must move to another hut.
Hey Ken, what happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons, precisely like... Pedro Godero, Aaron Sapp. Jeremiah Genest. Corey Welch. And Ross Ireland. Solve pendulum-related mysteries alongside this elite cohort by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The serried rows of fine leather bindings, the stacks of weird bespoke paperbacks, and the general scent of wood pulp and brandy in the air tell us we've entered a book hut, a book-lined book hut, the book hut, in fact, and this book hut, we go to the rosewood stand in the middle, open it up, and sure enough, it's a book by Umberto Eco. Now, that might happen in any well-appointed book hut, but this book hut, thanks to Patreon member Frank King, is the book hut dedicated to Umberto Eco. Frank King has all good uh, literate people are, is a fan, and wants to hear us express our fandom as well, and perhaps even to express the method by which uh, that fandom can turn into other creative endeavors, such as, oh, I don't know, gaming! Robin, where's your Umberto Echo uh, pendulum hang from? Um, my pendulum swings very much in the direction of the two books everybody agrees they love of Umberto Echo's, uh, The Name of the Rose and Foucault's Pendulum. Echo also... I think holds the honor of the most books that I valiantly tried to get into and stopped at about page 75. Mm -hmm. Um, But especially in written literature, uh, two home runs over the course of a career is actually uh, pretty darned amazing. And uh, you forget all the other stuff and set it aside. Uh, And those two books alone, I think, are where the depth of gaming uh, richness can uh, come from. Before I start uh, critiquing part of Echo's over, I guess I'll invite you to, uh, are there other of his books that you would uh, put alongside those two? Or or like me, are you a uh, two book only on Echo? Well, alongside is a big row to hoe. I don't think that anything is as good as uh, Foucault's Pendulum. I think even Name of the Rose, it's more accessible because it's uh, it's a murder mystery, and those are uh, an un- sort of a solved genre for a lot of people. I mean, like a lot, a lot of people, like virtually everyone literate. Foucault's Pendulum is a much harder job, and to make that very recondite conspiracy thriller, I mean, that book just stops dead three different places and starts again. And if you are not on board the way that I was, 
you know, I'm weird. So I uh, read Foucault's Pendulum all the way through many, many times. Uh, plenty of people have also hit page 75 of Foucault's Pendulum and bailed out. So I think Foucault's Pendulum is sort of a singular achievement. I will, however, say that the Prague Cemetery is, is another great one, and it's actually more accessible. If that had come out after Name of the Rose, I think that there might have been a, a stepping stool up to Foucault's Pendulum for a lot of people. I think it's uh, the one that I most recently bailed on. And know. maybe if I had <laughs> there gotten, <you> go. <laughs> if there was a uh, something happened to interrupt my reading progress in it, whether I forget whether I got sick or there was some trip or something, but I think I got sick. And then once I tried to get back into it, uh, I didn't because, and I think this, uh, if we're looking at how to write good principles, the reason I think that Name of the Rose and uh, Pendulum are so much more uh, accessible than the others is that they both use conventional narrative structures, the murder mystery and the uh, conspiracy thriller, to keep you turning the pages with the conventional hope and fear of, I hope this is going to happen, I fear this is going to happen, the uh, basic uh, structures that maintain emotional engagement, whereas the uh, other books uh, have all of the uh, erudition uh, proximity, at least as far as I got in, it was basically a kind of a gloss on uh, Hoisman's, uh, in which notoriously in, in his Against the Grain, where a character for the length of an entire novel thinks about doing something and briefly leaves the house and decides that he shouldn't have done that and goes back home. Um, <laughs> but that's a, a, a brilliant novel in short. Um, and here there's so much uh, of the sort of just presentation of the history of European antisemitism without a burning question as to what is or isn't going to happen that I think is the the differentiating point between why those two things are really uh, gripping uh, to me and the other ones are there's just not enough. I think you may have bailed on Prague Cemetery a little early. That There's stuff that starts happening uh, further in than page 75. I would argue that the stuff should start happening before I'm I I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm going to say <laughs> that you bailed early on Prague Cemetery. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, I, for example, uh, the island of the day before, I was, I was totally into it. I was ready for it. And it's like a, a lengthy meditation on place which I I had not expected. I thought I was getting a pirate book with weird uh, Italian um, uh, metaphysics in it, and I got a weird metaphysics book with the occasional pirate here and there. You wind up becalmed. Yes, I did wind up becalmed. And Baudolino was about Prester John, who I think is awesome. But again, this is where I think with Baudolino and Queen Luana, uh, Echo really wanted to talk about the nature of reality, which I also really want to talk about. But I want to talk about it with Templars. And so I think it, it it's a question that he asks in Foucault's Pendulum really, really effectively. And for me, at least, I, like yourself, I, I was so going to read Baudolino, but I just stopped and did not finish it. So that's So what do you my, think of the essays? I love the essays. I think that the essays are terrific. And I'll tell you, his full-length non-fictional history of imaginary languages, uh, The Search for the Perfect Language, is great. It is super good. It is a great book about a topic that is full of crazy and being Umberto Eco, he takes the crazy and he puts them in there while also sort of presenting the straight up linguistics and the straight up sort of sociology of it that I thought was really good. I, I, I very much like his essays. Um, his film criticism is very interesting. It is not my uh, take necessarily, but it is always really well done. I, I still go back to his definition of a pornography film, which is a film that takes longer to get to the next scene than you would like. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how you know that they have to pad in between what he calls the unspeakable parts, which I like. I don't know if that's the translator or 
uh, Echo being Arch, but I enjoy that. And I have, I have not, um, uh, been able to read his work on Charles Pierce, but I think that's because I don't get Charles Pierce logically. The, I'm, every time I run into abduction, which is his logical method, I have to have it explained to me again like I was a child. So I think that I have, um, uh, not been rigorously trained enough in, in logic to, to grok his book about Pierce. Not that I think he did a bad job because I think that if I ever got, you know, sort of an arm over Charles Pierce, I would be able to just run right through his, his book on that, uh, with no problems. I, uh, always, uh, had the essays on my list of things I must read one day. And, uh, since we're going to do this segment, I thought I would uh, do some homework and read some of the essays in travels in hyper reality. And I have to say that I, uh, reacted violently against them. Ooh, interesting. There's one particular essay that is a, uh, a close reading of Casablanca. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has written a close reading of Casablanca, of course, I went to that one first. And I thought that was flat out dumb and wrongheaded, uh, erudite, but wrong and dumbheaded. Well, I mean, I mean, we, I, you and I have both read film criticism that is wrong and dumbheaded, but is still interesting uh, and maybe even valuable as film criticism. I mean, Jonathan Rosenbaum, who is a great film critic, is a straight up Marxist. And so when he film criticizes something, he is going to be wrong 90% of the time, but he's always going to be really interestingly thought, and it's going to give you a way to look at it. Did you think that Echo was, as um, uh, Wolfgang Pauli said, not even wrong? No, I, I didn't think it was smart writing I disagreed with. I thought it was flat out dumb, and here's why. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> he uh, In the Casablanca essay, he starts out by saying, well, you know, Casablanca isn't a good movie. <laughs> not like something by Antonioni or Eisenstein or Dreyer. But let's explore why it's a cult movie. And so I think that that uh, reveals something that runs through the essays that I read, which is he's, at least during this period, is just an old-fashioned, flat-out, high-culture snob. Yeah. And, in fact, I think the whole project of semiotics, uh, we haven't mentioned the S-word yet, but of course that's crucial to all of Echo, is in a way a way for uh, high-culture academics to justify writing about the things that actually really interest them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that list of directors, uh, none of those directors are directors that I would dismiss. But if that is your pinnacle of the three most, the, the top makers of film, that reveals that you are deliberately choosing the slow, sludgy, <laughs> I was gonna, forbidding work. I was, was, was going to say that it, 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 inter- it indicates you found something in Carl Dreyer that I haven't ever found. I mean, ad- admittedly, um, uh, if you can put me to sleep with a vampire movie, you are working. <laughs> yes. Uh, Dreyer is, there's, uh, I would say more, uh, Dreyer is somnolent than not. Uh, his, uh, uh, Joan of Arc movie is a big exception to that yeah, one. Right. And Tonioni, I, uh, probably like Antonioni more than most people. And there's a couple of his films that I really love, but, uh, most of them are also 20 minutes too long and, and really slow. Um, and Eisenstein, I think, is more really an influence today than someone you would sit down and watch. And so just that judgment. And through the essays, it's like America is a shorthand for dumb and uh, barbaric and stupid. Well, he's wrong about Superman, too. He's wrong about Superman, too. Um, and he's, but again, I mean, so so is DC now. So, you know, what kind of world do we live in? Right. You expect Italian uh, ac- communist academics to get Superman wrong, but for goodness sake, for Warner Brothers to do it, that's... that's, that's uh, that un- may be even be the topic of a future segment. And, and it's not just the way that he uh, is wrong about Superman, uh, but the sort of uh, offhand, 
way in which he makes an assertion and just continues to follow along if it's real. And he's talking about the, the Donner Superman and saying, well, what this proves is that there's a resurgence of religious thought in the world. And then he just goes on to list a whole bunch of really quick skimming examples of different uh, trendy things that were where religion was in the news in the day. So he kind of argues by assertion. Uh, so not only are, they, are the assertions wrong, but they're not uh, well supported. And uh, and so that's uh, why I find myself uh, withdrawing uh, from the essays. And I think that his, uh, not just the references in them, but that old-fashioned uh, high culture snobbish certitude, which certainly hasn't died out yet, but is uh, under serious threat, I think in the years to come is going to make those essays uh, look more and more like you should be reading Foucault's Pendulum and Name of the Rose. Um, so, <laughs> well, you should be reading Foucault's Pendulum regardless. It's just a great, yes. great, great book. And it's a great, uh, people ha- have asked me many, many, many times, um, Ken, you read more nonsensical conspiracies than any five men. Why aren't you crazy? Why don't you believe that stuff? And, you know, to begin with, I was raised correctly, but also, <laughs> Once you've read which and is, which is easier said than done. Yes, it, true enough. It's like, well, first be be born a middle class American and then everything will fix itself. Um but uh I I read Foucault's Pendulum and the de- the literal deconstruction that it performs on that mode of thought is so complete and so perfect and so hermetic even uh not although not hermetic it's holistic it, it's 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 not sealed in against itself it's it's complete but it's open to all influences um is a great uh, antidote if you find yourself ever taking it seriously i think if you can integrate foucault's pendulum just as one possible eye to have open in your head all the time so much of this meretricious dross will immediately be revealed for what it is, which is to say uh, fuel for a, a fun game session, but nothing more. And that is, I think, one of the really great things that, that Foucault's Bunchalum does is that it takes that what you're talking about, that sort of high culture snobbery and turns it to its original use, which is to actually identify weak and um, uh, and, and, you know, as in the echo sense, pornographic thought as exactly what it is. Uh, the, the weak and pornographic and it does it while remaining engaged and while remaining in its own, uh, metier, like you say, the metier of the conspiracy thriller. And so, so it sort of does that balancing act that I guess you're saying that the, uh, that the essays do not do for you. Right. And that I think we are both saying maybe some of the later novels do not quite manage. And I think people have projected onto those essays in particular, the thing uh, that typifies both of our careers. And so I think he's uh, gets credit for these uh, thoughts that he sparks and for the idea that you can look at pop culture in an intelligent way and you can look at it and as a series of uh, units that you can then interpret and move around and shuffle and that your reaction to an image or a characterization uh, or a moment in a movie or a work of literature is not just... Uh, that moment, but creates a, a cascade of other associations that you have with it. And that idea... And this is where we're getting into semiotics, right? Right. That's semiotics, uh, which he didn't invent, but he popularized. Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, in a sense, taken those semiotic ideas and put them into gaming. And uh, where, uh, you know, Feng Shui, for example, is all about, you know, all of these archetypes, all of these stock elements that you think of... Uh, uh, that snobbish people think of as terrible are in fact emotionally satisfying and real and resonant because there is something in them that we project 
onto. So though, though Echo himself probably wouldn't like Feng Shui, uh, some of those, uh, that way of thinking made itself into Feng Shui. Through that, you know, it uses the word trope, and therefore the uh, people who created uh, the TV trope si uh, site apparently read Feng Shui and started thinking about all entertainment in terms of where all of their tropes are. So, you know, in a way that, and that then became a much more popularized idea. And now uh, everybody, uh, lots of people who watch television are sitting there going, oh, I'm familiar with that trope. And, you know, that's sort of the bloodstream of ideas that went from the uh, other semioticians through Echo into pop culture. So that, you know, that is a big contribution. It's just, I feel that when you actually look at the content of the essays and look for a chain of uh, great argument that there's uh, there's a little less than uh, than meets the eye. Um, very quickly, we've uh, run over on this segment. Uh, how do we... <laughs> oh, uh, couldn't, uh, what? We've run over uh, on an echo segment. An echo seg the echo segment happen? has gone on too long? That never yeah. happens. Yeah, exactly. Everybody bailed on page 75. <laughs> That's right. They're segment. like, ah, fast forwarding. Yes. I don't um, get it. Don't so, care. So uh, quickly, then, the answer to how to import echo into your games is to... Uh, play uh, anything written by Ken or half the things written by me. Yeah, that's the fastest way to do <laughs> there it. There we go. There, a little concision at the that's end. Right. So let's, let's get out of this hut before it uh, metastasizes. More Ken, more Robin, less Italian snobbery. Beneath the headlines, deep in the shadow world of international security, an elite corps of covert operatives grab up their stingrays, Kevlar vests, and M4s to seek and destroy the eldritch adversaries of the Cthulhu mythos. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you are one of those agents. You're the one they call when unnatural horrors seep into the world. You fight to keep cosmic evil from claiming human lives and sanity. You conspire to cover it all up so no one else must see what you've seen or learn the terrible truths you've discovered. The quick start rulebook of Delta Green Need to Know includes everything you need to play Delta Green. Complete rules for conducting investigations, overcoming crises, fighting for your life, and watching your sanity slip away. Complete rules for character creation. Six characters ready to play. At Delta Green Operation, Last Things Last, Ready for the handler, the game moderator, to introduce your team to Delta Green tonight. The physical edition of Delta Green Needs to Know also comes with a sturdy four-panel screen loaded with data to help the handler run a fast-paced, suspenseful game and sinister wraparound art to keep the players terrified. This is only the beginning. Deeper terrors can be found in Delta Green the role-playing game and its source books, available from Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And uh, sometimes uh, it asks him to go and change the timeline. Sometimes we ask him for his after-action report on something that has seemed to us to be part of the timeline all along, but it is, in fact, the work of our mysterious Mr. Ken Height and uh, perhaps his tumbler of vodka. And uh, this segment falls into the second category because uh, we would like to know uh, why you collapsed the Font Hill Abbey Tower in 1825. And of course, before we get to that, we'll need you to uh, explain to us uh, what Font Hill Abbey 
was, and perhaps something about uh, its original builder, William Beckford, uh, known for his uh, art collection, his uh, messy personal life, and for writing Vathek. Uh, Ken, uh, there's all sorts of different ways to start telling us about this. Which one is revved up and ready to go in the time machine? All right. I think that we begin, and the way that we understand Beckford, um, over and above everything else about Beckford, I think it's it's fairest to understand that he is a guy who, when he looks at the world, says, I don't think this world is gothic and crazy enough and works his little butt off to make it more so. And by works his butt off, I mean spends a fat lot of money that his father and all of the slaves owned by his father have worked their butt off for. He inherited a million pounds in 1770-something at the age of 10. Back when a million pounds was a lot of money. And that was because his father was a big sugar planter uh, in Jamaica, primarily. And... um. Uh, Sugar, uh, then as now, was a great way to make a fat lot of money uh, for practically no effort. Back in those days, you did it by literally enslaving people. Nowadays, we do it by uh, prohibitive tariffs, but it's the same basic principle. Um, and when he was 10 years old, he inherited all that fat sugar money and therefore didn't have to live in the real world if he damn well didn't. So he uh, wrote Vathek, I think, as... Uh, perhaps a reaction that the Arabian Nights were not dark and weird and crazy and satanic enough. I think maybe as a kid, he opened them up and was promised all manner of forbidden delights and got a lengthy series of iterative stories about magic plums and said, I think I can do better than that. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so he wrote Vathek, which was supposed to be a lost Arabian night and turns out to be a crazy uh, iterative Gothic novel, but not about plums. Right. And, and interestingly, wrote it in French and uh, was translated into English by somebody exactly. else. And I think again, Against his will, it was translated into English. And then he decided to build uh, Font Hill, which would be a Gothic Abbey. And rather than buy a Gothic Abbey, uh, he thought that those Gothic Abbeys were insufficiently Gothic. And so he hired uh, an architect named uh, uh, James Wyatt uh, to build him a faux Gothic Abbey that would be more Gothic than the Gothic. And so uh, the Gothic has elevated um, uh, uh, use of vertical space. Font Hill was going to have even more elevated use of even more vertical space. Everything was going to be high. He was sort of a Tim Burton set designer, Avant La Lettre, if you will. And I suspect uh, Burton has actually probably uh, looked at uh, the the sort of the the pictures of uh, Beckford's Wunderkammer there, the, the the Font Hill, and thought, oh, I'll bet I could put Batman on that, and it would be even better. And indeed, it was. So uh, Wyatt and uh, Beckford in shifts because Wyatt had to go do his actual job of architecting and couldn't just stand around supervising crazy font Hill all the time. So Beckford gleefully raced into the mix and he would have uh, ideas like, I want to eat a uh, Christmas dinner uh, from the new dining room. And people would say, well, we haven't finished the dining room. And he says, well, build the dining room because Christmas is a I cousin. have a million pounds. I got a million pounds. It's not getting any less valuable. And they would say, well, uh, the dining room, we can't really do that until we've done the kitchens. And he says, what? No kitchens? How are you going to cook my Christmas dinner for the 20 guests I'm not going to invite? Um, and so they had to build them in a great tearing hurry. And then the dining room and the kitchen fell in again after Christmas. But Beckford would say, all right, there's your pounds. Start building again. So I didn't really have to make it fall over is what I'm trying to say. That was going to fall over. I thought over. you were going to tell me that that was the, the cover story and that you had to do more. Oh, believe me, uh, William Beckford is crazy impatient is not anyone's cover story. That's, that's the way that you, um, uh, that's the way that you sell it when it has to happen. Um, 
So Beckford, uh, um, has a colorful personal life. He is very much in love with his wife, but she, uh, dies in childbirth. And at that point, I think he has one of those, well, if true love doesn't save anyone, how about just, um, uh, uh, having sex with everything? How does that work? Um, and so that's sort of what he uh, moved on into. He had, uh, a, uh, art collection for the same sort of, uh, uh, impulse that caused him to build, uh, Font Hill. The notion that he was going to own all manner of exotic and crazy art from all over the world. Uh, in, I think a response to Horace Walpole having sort of pioneered that as a thing that someone who owned a Gothic folly should do. Walpole's collection was, uh, justifiably famous at Strawberry Hill. And I think with Beckford, it was a lot of, well, Walpole's, uh, uncle or dad was just prime minister. I own Jamaica, so I should have a much crazier, uh, collection. And, um, uh, among the things that he, uh, among the things that he had, I believe, were uh John D's shoestone or was that Walpole? Uh, I think that was I think Walpole. That was, that was Walpole, yeah. So but he had he had all manner of stuff. He had um uh Chinese vases and he had um uh Arabian carpets and he had all manner of stuff. The thing he didn't collect was boring old Roman sculptures because everyone collected those. So that's what made it They're too pristine and rational. Right, exactly. Un- unlike the Romans themselves. Yes. Uh William Hazlitt, who is uh really great at saying mean things about other people, said that Beckford liked idle rarities and curiosities or mechanical skill. Um which uh he meant in an insulting way, but I think we think of as, hey, that's not a bad theme for a collection. So uh, the, he, he fills uh, Font Hill up with uh, wonderful art, but as many people do who inherit Jamaica, um, he does not know what a pound is actually worth, and he starts to run out of money, and he has to sell Font Hill um, uh, in 1822 uh, when he is a mere um, uh, 62 years old. And, uh, it gets a bunch of Font Hill gets sold, uh, for a third of a million pounds to a guy who got his money, uh, selling gunpowder to the Indians, uh, not our Indians, but the people in India, uh, who needed it. I, su- I suspect to shoot the hated British. So that, that's good work. If you can get it, I guess. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't be used, uh, the first arms dealer to not care so much about who, who wound up getting killed, who wound up on the, on the, sh- on the shooting end. Um, uh, and then that guy flipped the, the collection and, and sold that. And that's why William Hazlitt said all the snotty things that William Hazlitt right. said. And the auctioneer snuck in a bunch of inferior stuff, which is what Hazlitt oh, may have tat. been yes. turning his nose up at. Yes. Uh, stuff so bad, even Horace Walpole wouldn't have collected it. They said, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, if you didn't have to do much to make the tower fall over and, uh, uh, Beckford was not uh, in possession of the tower at the time. Uh, what did you do and why? Um, well, the the main thing that I did was um, uh, make sure that when things like uh, uh, one of the earliest turners go up for the gavel, that the copy that gets bought by John Farquhar is not an original. There was a great deal of art uh, salvaging going on at that point. And uh, as Hazlitt later found out, Phillips salted it with a lot of stuff that was to cover up the holes in the collection, the time incorporated and or I uh, spirited away. And so we had to sort of bulk out the collection with other stuff that we found lying around time. And that's so that, that's these, what happens. these are works of art that otherwise would have been shortly uh, destroyed shortly there. Exactly. They would have been destroyed. They would have been lost. They would have been uh, owned by fat, ugly British people. Uh, any number of horrible things could have happened to them. And Time Incorporated uh, wanted me to make sure that the uh, that they are safe. 
in uh, the future where they belong. And so did you then have to go back and do a bunch of other different missions to uh, uh, replace those paintings, or is, are they still in a big time vault? Um, there are... Well, one of the things that uh, the Time Incorporated does is it provides uh, useful employment for... Uh, Art forgers and um, uh, and uh, lock pickers and all manner of exciting thriller uh, characters, just in case we need to mount uh, brilliant capers, uh, in which possibly I get to uh, wear a tie and tell people to go around and do things. Um, but uh, but uh, the the art forgery uh, wing of Time Incorporated, it's actually it's it's pretty big. Frankly, it's too big, and so um, we have a, a lot of the originals uh, that are that are stored away. But every now and again, you'll say, "Goodness." How come there's so many forged Rembrandts out there? Well, that's because Time Incorporated doesn't trust you to hold onto a Rembrandt and treat it nice. So if you're in a museum with too many forged Rembrandts, just know that that museum is going to be destroyed by fire at some point in the next uh, 40 to 50 years. Right. So when it says School of Rembrandt, what it really means is Time Incorporated. Time Incorporated, exactly. Um, uh, Or sometimes it just says Rembrandt because art museums are snobs. But uh, the, the goal was basically just to sort of loot his collection uh, before, first of all, uh, the building fell over on it. And second of all, it um, uh, got broken up and uh, damaged in all of these cells because a lot of this stuff turns out to be really fragile. So were you dealing with um, Beckford? Were you uh, swiping stuff from him or were you swiping stuff? This is, after this is stuff? after he this is after he uh, loses money. Um, you can't deal with Beckford when he's. Uh, young and, and in blossom. It's fun to try to deal with Beckford, but again, when you're dealing with a guy who actually I can't drink under the table because this guy has been quaffing laudanum from human <laughs> he, he skulls. He drinks tables under the table. Right. He drinks, he literally drinks the table under the table, then smashes the table up. That's what he does. So, um, Beckford is a great guy to party with, but he's not a guy that I'm going to be able to get around on that way. So basically, you just outlast him, which is another thing that you can do with a time machine. And, um, uh, you know, keep an eye on the, on the, on the furnishings that you, that you need to get, uh, out of there and moved into the future. So did you discover anything new while you were down there or was it just basically an, uh, an art removal run? It's basically an art removal run and an excuse to hang with, uh, William Beckford. I mean, I've, I've had such great results, uh, hanging out with, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and, and some of the other, uh, early horrorists that I thought Beckford might be a fun guy. And he is a fun guy, but he's just very exhausting. And and was he over the uh, indignity of having Vathak translated? Did you make him feel better about that? I did. I let him know that uh, he had managed to make all manner of people whose lives had previously not been creepy at all, super creepy as a result of that. And that sort of, he, you know, once you explained to him that um, the lower orders could could feel creepiness, that was sort of like a new revelation to him. And he was pretty excited about that. So he took that as, as the highest compliment possible. Exactly. That if you can if you can instill the feeling of creep in people who are um, uh, unsuited to feel any higher emotions, then you must be awesome. And I sort of let him alone with that because uh, people you don't want to argue Edmund Burke with also includes William Beckford, it turns out. Right. Well, on that note, I think uh, we have uh, time traveled to the end of our podcast, and uh, we will uh, jump in another time vehicle to rejoin you all in a week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Andrew Young. Chris O'Neill. Drew Eichholz. Daniel Callahan. And Daniel Markwig. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. 
See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>